The Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Dean's Roundtable, a professional development seminar featuring the Boeing Company retiree, Norma B. Clayton, and engineering deans from ABET-accredited HBCU universities. In order to sustain competitiveness in the world, we have to continue to innovate. What are HBCUs doing to be on the cutting edge of technology and innovation? What are the next practices and areas of innovation? Without further ado, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Dean's Roundtable, featuring Norma B. Clayton, an engineering dean from ABET-accredited HBCU universities. Well, good afternoon, and thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Norma Clayton, and I am with the Tuskegee University Board of Trustees, and I am going to be the moderator for this afternoon's session. So hopefully you've had a chance to get something to eat. I know everybody's been really busy today, um, but we're going to try to make this a very engaging discussion for all. But before I get started, I just wanted to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Our sponsor this year is Apple, and we have a representative from Apple with us, uh, Mr. Termaine Brown. Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate that. And um, I also wanted to just take a moment to um, introduce our deans, and, uh, and then I will get into the topic for today's session and uh, I'm going to stand, if that's okay, with the deans, because there's so many of you, I don't want to have to keep reaching down the table. So uh, I've been sitting most of the day, so I really would prefer to stand up, if that's okay. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to start on my right, and uh, we'll go down the row. We'll introduce all of our panelists, and then I will come back, talk about our topic. I'll give you a little bit of context and then we'll shift to our panel for questions, and then we'll come to the audience. There are microphones, so please go to the microphone if you have a question. And I would ask for one question so that we get everybody an opportunity to ask. And then if you want to circle back with your next question, that would be fine as well. Okay, everybody good? Can we get started? Okay, let's, uh, we have another Dean joining us here. Okay, there we go. So why don't we go ahead with our introductions. I'm Pamela Beeman, the Dean of the Raji Perry College of Engineering at Prairie Vietnam University. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Keefe. I'm the Dean for the College of Science, Engineering, and Technology at Norfolk State University. Uh, Wilbur Walters, uh, Dean for the College of Science, Engineering, and Technology, Jackson State University. Hello. Craig Scott, Interim Dean the Clarence Mitchell Junior School of Engineering at Morgan State University. Hello everyone, I'm ZT Deng. I'm Interim Dean for the College of Engineering, Technology, and Physical Science, Alabama A&M University. Good afternoon everyone and thank you for being here. I'm Robin Koger, Dean of the College of Engineering at North Carolina A&T. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Hashmet Agland. I'm the Dean of the College of Engineering, Tuskegee University. Good afternoon. I'm Devdas Shetty. I'm the Dean of School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, University of District of Columbia. John Anderson, Interim Dean, College of Engineering and Architecture at Howard University. Good afternoon, Patrick Kellier, Dean of College of Sciences and Engineering at Southern University. 
Good afternoon. My name is David Haile. I'm the Dean for the College of Engineering and Technology at Virginia State University. Um, my name is Murray Gibson. I'm the Dean of the Florida A&M Florida State University College of Engineering. Good afternoon. I'm Joy Shirazi, Dean of the School of Engineering and Technology at Hampton University. Happy to be here. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Derek Dunn. I'm the Dean of the School of Business and Technology at the University of Maryland, Eastern Shore. Okay, thank you very much, Deans. Appreciate that so much. So if you were at the Dean's breakfast this morning, we talked about being a catalyst for change. And the Deans gave us a report out on some of the critical research that they're doing at all of their respective universities. So we're gonna build a little bit more on that theme this afternoon. And our topic is innovation at HBCUs. So what are our HBCUs doing to stay on the cutting edge of technology and innovation? What are the next practices, the next areas of innovation? And why is this important? It's important because in order for us to sustain our competitiveness in the world, we have to continue to innovate. And innovation starts organically. And in order to do that on the corporate side, we have to make sure that we're doing the research in our institutions of higher education to ensure that we're fielding the best workforce with the best skills. So this is a very appropriate conversation for our deans to be having today to kind of capitalize on some of those technologies. They share a very unique role in the development of our students to make sure that not only are they productive members of society, but that they're able to bring the best ideas to the world to solve some of the complex problems. The world that our students are entering is not only global and highly competitive, but it's ever-changing through innovation and technology. So with that as a backdrop, um, some of the questions that I have are earmarked for everyone on the panel, and some of them are earmarked towards anyone who would like to answer those questions. So the first one that I'd like all of you to respond to individually is HBCUs, as well as other colleges and universities, have seen a decrease in African-American high school students. What innovations and interventions have your institutions put in place to attract students? Okay, I'm Pamela Beerman uh, with Prairie View. And so we really do what you guys do in the corporate industry when you have a flat and declining market. Basically what you do is you go after other markets. So we go after students who would not, would not normally major in engineering. That's one of the things we do. We also redirect, try to redirect students who would normally go to other universities. We try to um, recruit those students. But one of the biggest things that we're doing is we focus on retention. There are over three million people in the U.S. who have college credits who have not completed their degrees. And so that's a market that we would start going after and put in uh, retention and success programs to maintain the students that are already at, at the universities. In terms of the enrollment at the College of Science, Engineering, and Technology at Norfolk State University, uh, we have actually increased in enrollment uh, and specifically in the Department of Engineering, um, we have basically maintained um, the enrollments, maybe slightly up for this particular year. 
But in terms of another strategy that we use to attract the <laughs> students, so we have lots of summer outreach programs, or outreach programs that we do during the year. And specifically, we have a summer health and science academy um, that we have for middle school students and we also have for high school students. And so they are exposed to different activities in computer science and in health, of course, in, in uh, engineering uh, and also in biology. And so we attract students that way. Also, uh, we have um, tapped into our alumni, one of our alumni, um, Don Carey. He is a professional football player, but he graduated from Norfolk State in the Department of Technology. And he runs, initially it was a football camp, um, but uh, he has partnered with, um, it's now the Don Carey Football and STEAM uh, camp. And so we participate in that in terms of uh, half the day is in football, then the other side they come in and do a lot of the activities in STEM. And so we have our robotics um, people there, our computer science department, engineering, just lots of things to expose them to STEM also on that day. So we partner with them as well. Um, uh, we also have um, nanotechnology days. Again, we, we, our engineering department goes out to the local high schools and we do nanotechnology in terms of the different types of activities that we do. We host it on campus as well, and also we go to schools to do various activities as well. And so we go back to the high schools again to do different activities. And we also showcase our planetarium where we invite the, invite the local uh, high schools uh, to see, uh, to go to the different shows in our planetarium in terms of the physics department and science in space. Uh, Wilbur Walters, Jackson State University. Uh, uh, there are three things that, uh, strategic things that that we've done, uh, we recognize that there is a changing uh, the demographics that you, you mentioned, a, a decrease in enrollment. However, our uh, engineering program has, uh, for the last five years, has grown at double digits, but we recognize things on the horizon. And so uh, recently the university uh, decreased, basically got rid of the out-of-state fees for students coming in. So we looked at the, the, the locations that we were pulling most students from, and we pulled ourselves right below their in-state fees to, to make Jackson State um, uh, affordable for those students, because that's what it really comes down to. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, and, and the other portion was looking at our local population and saying that if we don't grow the students that are in our mm. local urban population, uh, then we're doing a disservice. So uh, one of the... Uh, the missions, and we've had some conversations here uh, with Lockheed Martin. We, we started the Lockheed Martin uh, STEM Academy, and uh, we started with middle school. And so now we're drilling, they've accessed the drill back down into elementary all the way through high school. So we think we can, we can start to change those numbers or at least change the conversation about uh, uh, students moving into the STEM careers. Hi, Craig. Uh, Craig Scott, Morgan State University. Um, I look at it like everybody's looking for the best and the brightest, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there is still a large number of students out there with a little polish, and I think Wilbur, that's what you were alluding to, that, um, that will make excellent workforce candidates. So um, with that said, uh, a lot of Tier 1 or R1 universities are starting to recognize this and are putting resources into this. But we also look at where we got to, where, where we got, and what we did to get there from. And it came from just hard work. In other words, going out there, being proactive, looking for students, visiting the high schools, working with them, looking at middle schools, and, and approaching it that way. 
But then the other part that we uh, we think is something that we uh, we're doing and looking into that uh, that may change things are programs like E4 USA. E4 USA stands for Engineering for Us All, and in this program, what it is, it's a dual enrollment program. It's designed to extend uh, the uh, AP courses to AP in Engineering. It's a pilot course sponsored by the National Science Foundation. And what it does is it allows us to go out to high schools, work with the teachers, train them, and be able to uh, have students come to Morgan, attend Morgan, before actually being in Morgan while they're in high school, doing Project Lead the Way and other capstone projects. So we think these kind of things are things that we need to do to sort of go beyond what the standard thing is, and we cannot afford to wait for our students to come to us. We have to go to them. Uh, we are in Huntsville, Alabama, right? So our school's enrollment here is steady. So we're very fortunate, we're very blessed by that. So um, continue recruiting students is, of course, necessary for us. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no other way to do a better recruiting, you know. <laughs> so now the College of Engineering here has a goal. Our goal is to provide opportunity to students to train our students so when we go out to recruit students in there we're going to tell them what is the strength when you come to Alabama A&M what can we do for you right so where are those opportunity coming from it coming from the needs right the industry needs the government needs especially nowadays in cybersecurity additive manufacturing that's where our focus point. So we want to build our strengths in the college in here so that we can tell the students in here, you come to the right place. At North Carolina A&T's College of Engineering, there are, of course, outreach efforts. But what we've focused on more was making sure that the ecosystem of the college is rich with opportunities so that the reputation of the college goes before us. And by doing that, we find that our enrollment is continuing to rise. And to give you an example of the kinds of things that we put in the ecosystem to strengthen it and just to make sure that it's serving the students and to serving their future professional careers, um, we, for instance, have a National Academy of Engineering approved Grand Challenge Scholars Program. The reason why that's significant is that the five competencies of that program were what I always say was a unanimous vote of my leadership team when I put it forth. And it's because when I tell you those competencies, you'll see why it's relevant to any company and any government organization for what people need to know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the first competency deals with research and creative projects. And so it's thinking about things that haven't been done before and you taking the action in order to deliver them and work with others to deliver them. It is multidisciplinary competency. It is uh, business and entrepreneurship as one competency. Multiculturalism is another one and social consciousness is another. And so when you think about that and you think about, well, what do you mean entrepreneurship? What are you, are you saying? You want your students to start a company? If they want to. Mm -hmm. What I'm mostly concerned about is their mindset. And if they're using an entrepreneurial yeah. mindset and if they and they get to practice that while they're with us as students, yeah. then it enables them to be contributions no matter whether they're going to a traditional mm -hmm. organization or if they're starting one of their own. Mm -hmm. And so on the entrepreneurship is one of those ways that we flourish or strengthen our environment. And so uh, our faculty are working with our alumni and we've begun an entrepreneurship workshop series inside the College of Engineering. 
because sometimes students need to hear about that and see their future by looking at those kind of things. We have an innovation um, seminar series that is the Dean Seminar Series that we, we do every year. Um, we have uh, two makerspaces in the College of Engineering because when you think about the muscle of thinking entrepreneurially, it begins with you practicing it. And so that practice means that a student should be able to wake up and then go to a space that's not related to a class and say, I have this idea. Let me build it and see what happens. And that's what the makerspaces are. Yeah. Casual spaces that are for them, built mm -hmm. by students, run by students, that allows them to take an idea and bring it into fruition. Um, and so those are going on. Um, when we talk about multiculturalism, you can imagine that there are so many dimensions of that. There are dimensions that have to do with just thinking about other cultures that we, well, the United States has every culture, but ultimately mm -hmm. it could be a race-based <laughs> thing, but it's more so thinking about the humanity-based thing. And so the humanity means that when you go to Italy or you go to Germany and you are from a North Carolina, DC or California, you're first of all remembering that you're interacting with people that have some kind of difference than you do. So we have a global engineering leadership program that was begun by my board in which students travel every year to another country and they go and visit engineering companies while there. And so again, it's about them understanding that they can work anywhere in the world and how important that is. So it's those kind of things that we try to do to allow our reputation to go before us because of how it equips the students to be professionally, not only sound in their technical from their academics, but also sound in the things they've been exposed to because they've been with us. Thank you. At Tuskegee University, we have two sets of um, <coughs> summer outreach programs. We start ninth, 10th, 11th grade, and this is one set, we call it my, Minority Introduction to Engineering. And these are one week uh, programs during the summer, June and July. We get students from all over the countries. They um, come to Tuskegee, they stay on campus, and then they visit all the departments, the engineering departments. Also, we take them to industry or um, visiting industry, local industry, and they spend one day on the uh, Tuskegee Airmen Museum on Morton Field, where we show them the history of Tuskegee, the airplanes, uh, but we focus on the hands-on activities to show them. That's the my uh, set of uh, programs. Also, we offer extensive um, fast-track program. This is for incoming engineering freshmen. It's an eight-week program where we bring students from all over the country, and they are um, incoming freshmen to Tuskegee. Uh, we just prepare them math and science. We give them a class math and science, and also, uh, but the focus is hands-on. We just try to show them here's how the engineer works, here's the labs, here's the facilities. And uh, the MITE, which is a minority introduction to engineering, most of them, they join MITE 1, MITE 2, they follow the procedures and the fast track, they end up coming to the fast track and then incoming freshmen. But again, the focus is just hands-on, uh, immerse them in other activities, uh, guest speakers, role models, and that's how we build our uh, enrollment in uh, engineering. At the University of District of Columbia, we have both programs in ABET accredited programs in engineering, computer science, and IT. So, but if you really look at the numbers, numbers haven't gone down. Numbers have been going up. And in one or two areas, like a flat, like in electrical engineering, master's level, 
that is somewhat flat and it looks like it is countrywide even in other universities too. But uh, at the graduate level, it has gone down in electrical engineering. But in other areas, computer science, mechanical engineering, it is going up also. Uh, so the decrease in the international students we have made up by active recruiting in DC. So the number of students coming from DC in the last three years had been going up 15% each year. And there are more minorities actually in the, in the last three years. So that way it has balanced well. The the and in order to do that, we have done aggressive recruiting in, in going to different schools. Uh, in fact, taking along with our recruiter, we take one of our senior students also, because some of the high school students would like to hear from our student. We invite them to campuses, and then we have different kind of events for the schools. Um, in addition to that, we are also having partnership with community colleges. Uh, like in this region, we have Montgomery College, we have Northern Virginia Community College, we have PG County Community College, where we have this uh, two plus two articulation agreement. Normally what happens if you allow them to, some of the students are not calculus ready. Even we have our own community college. So the students may not be able to finish the engineering program in two years. So you have to have that bridge arrangement. So that has helped to increase some of our numbers. So uh, and in addition to that, there is one event we have done, which is really, I think, which makes sense. It is funded by the Air Force, is bringing teachers in the area of material science. You know, traditionally, like STEM area, we popularized by robotics contents, making fun. That is one way. Mm -hmm. But I feel that uh, influencing the teachers through chemistry and material science, and we bring them to the campus for one week, and that there are special master teachers who give them knowledge about STEM areas and very exciting experiments. And the intention is these teachers go back and share that with their students to create STEM awareness. And also it gives recognition to the school. So this is something which we did in the last couple of years, funded by the Air Force. So that kind of activities has helped us. Thank you. At Howard University, we. Uh, take uh, two main approaches to the concerns about having uh, less students available for our programs. <clears throat> Excuse me. One is, as was mentioned earlier, we try to do everything we can to keep the students that we uh, are able to attract to our program. And we do that in several ways. Uh, computer science, as probably many of you know, is a very popular uh, program and major, and it continues to grow. And you have some students who have a lot of practice with software. Um, developing programs, et cetera. And you have some who want to be a computer scientist because they heard of it, or, but they really don't have any background. So we have uh, CS boot camps where upper level students in computer science will assist students in their first and second year to help them in that big transition to go from sometimes not having any background in uh, computer science or uh, developing software to having to be in a course. So we have a CS boot camp that uh, we've been running successfully for several years. And just this past year, uh, through support um, from Lockheed Martin, we started a college-wide tutoring program. And so through the support that we received, we are able to have tutors that are paid that provide uh, extra instruction, if you will, in the primary courses that 
trip up a lot of students, which as you can imagine are what? Calculus what? One, two, and three, right? So um, that's always a big stumbling block. So we try to get them over the hump through those courses, chemistry, and a few other of the primary courses. But we're gonna expand that to uh, upper level courses uh, as well um, with the uh, support that we're receiving. Uh, we also have uh, something we, that's called the uh, VIP Vertical Integrated Program, which is you have a company sponsor that presents a problem that's of interest to them, and uh, we have a faculty lead who works on that problem and works with students starting from their freshman year. So the vertical integration is freshman, sophomore, et cetera, all the way up to a graduate student or a postdoc, all led overall by a, a faculty member. But the point is, is that if you have a freshman who's working on a problem from a corporation or a government agency, they're gonna feel like they're working on something that's valued and it helps make that connection to what they're doing uh, more real. And then you have the mentoring from a sophomore to a freshman, junior to a sophomore, graduate student to undergraduate, and then a faculty member to the students. So the vertical integrated program is something that we've been really pushing with our corporate uh, supporters, partners to fund and support. And they also have a very much an involvement because they'll come to the reviews, meeting reviews or presentations so that there's a real partnership and students can really uh, see that what they're doing is valued. So we think that has a big impact and we wanna continue to expand that. As far as directly working with high school students, like all of us up here, we have summer programs that we have. Um, but one of the things that we're doing that we think could have a big impact <clears throat> is we have a partnership that's developing with NSBE uh, DMV Junior. So NSBE is the, the uh, National Society of Black Engineers, but they have what they call junior uh, NSBE uh, chapters, which are really geared for K through 12. So the DMV stands for DC, Maryland, and Virginia. So NSBE, DC, Maryland, Virginia, Junior are gonna be NSBE kids, if you will, that are in the area. And so they have uh, been at Howard for several years and now we're trying to formalize that relationship. So really that it lasts beyond my tenure or anyone else's, but it becomes a agreement between their institution and the institution of Howard University. But it's all K through 12, they do robotics and all the different uh, STEM related activities that excite students. And we think that will help bring students not only to Howard, but to other uh, engineering programs just because they've been excited about STEM. Okay, thank you very much. At Southern University, so the key thing is really the building relationship. So what we do, we partner with guidance counselor we have to be engaged with the, we cannot wait for the student to come to us. So we have to build partnership with the high school guidance counselor. So also community college and so on. So we, we have to build a pipeline in, in other case. So we have some outreach programs. So where we bring students from middle school and high school. So they spend like four weeks at, at Southern University. We expose them to all those different fields of engineering, and then we have field trip, guest speaker coming and so on. With the community college, we have a partnership. So we have a two plus two program. So where we can kind of engage our student and then they bring them to, when they finish the 
60 hours at community college, they come to Southern University. Also, I received uh, last year a, some funding from the Department of Education. What we are facing, all HBCU, is retention. The first year is very important. And we lose 50% of our students in the first year. So the reason for that is because we are ill-prepared in math. We don't have the foundation. And some of them are, uh, are uh, taking some English development, English. So when they go in the first semester, take biology, chemistry, and so on, they, they don't succeed at all. So what we do, we provide support services for the students, tutoring coaches, and so on, recitation. So we can kind of build the foundation so they can be successful in the first year. Because if we lose them the first year, when, if they pass the first year, we have a, <coughs> probably likely they, they can graduate. But if we don't provide them support services, we lose them and so on. So because retention is cheaper than recruitment. So it's easy to, re to retain the student instead of recruiting students because we have to provide them resources and so on. Mm -hmm. So, but we have to be proactive. We cannot wait anymore because, uh, and also make them excited. For instance, first year, so we have a program also like shadow program. So we bring the high school student, they come, and then they shadow one of the students, spend one day in the classroom with the undergraduate the student. Also, dual enrollment is very important also. So while they are in, in high school, they can take courses at, at the college level. So we can have establish a relationship with the student, and they're more likely to come to Southern University. But uh, it's a challenge. So for, because you know, most of us do not have the resources to provide support services and so on. So we do our best to kind of make sure we can retain them and graduate them on time. Thank you very much. So the uh, question, the premise for the question is the number of students, African-American students uh, in high school or completing high school dwindling. But there is something that hasn't been said in that question. And that is, if you look at the proportion of minority students that are still underrepresented in program that we serve is large. So the opportunity that we all have is to be able to attract, to tap to that potential. Now, the challenge is all other institutions, PWIs and you know PWIs that are MSI now, are also focusing on that same set of uh, students. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing, uh, obviously, the challenge for most of our um, universities is the resources, meaning you know, how would you be able to win that challenge that you face from other PWIs uh, you know, in terms of providing student scholarship? You know, in some cases within our uh, state, we lose some of these students to the larger schools because we are unable to come up with the same amount of funding to provide these students. One thing that happened recently uh, because of uh, Amazon HQ2, uh, the state of Virginia pledged $1 billion to invest on increasing or doubling and tripling the number of students graduating from computing fields. Mm -hmm. So because of that, uh, Virginia State, as well as you know, our sister institution, Norfolk State, the other HBCU, state-supported HBCU, got funding support. Uh, 
uh, to participate in this program. So this may give us an opportunity to increase uh, the number of students coming into our computer science and computer engineering programs. Now, we do most of the things the other colleagues here said in terms of establishing relationship as pipeline from high school a two plus two program with community college. But a couple of things that we do at Virginia State uh, um, that are not mentioned uh, is uh, accelerated BS to MS program and uh, <clears throat> how this helped to increase our enrollment is those parents who otherwise would like to send their kids to um, programs like Virginia Tech within Virginia or UVA now when they understand that we have the pathway to those same programs by letting those students to attend four years in our program and then additional one year at one of these institutions. Uh, so that helped uh, to change at least you know, one of the programs that is you know, doing that is the manufacturing engineering program. We're seeing some changes in terms of the students that are coming into our program because of that. The other one is creation of new programs. Uh, still a challenge. As a state school, we have to undergo through uh, the approval process, and that approval process sometimes is very tough. You know, uh, we got our engineering program, like most of the institution here lately, in terms of engineering program. And now we are asked or we're told you cannot have this engineering program or that because the, 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 the state institution next to you already has it. Yeah. The unfortunate uh, situation with that is we were not the one who, by choice, we didn't say we don't want to have those programs. There was a time that we couldn't have those programs. Now we, when we want to have them, there is this kind of restriction. But we are pushing uh, towards that because the conversation that we're putting to the state is we're serving a different uh, you know, community here. Mm -hmm. The kind of students that we are having in our programs are not the same as the program, the engineering programs at other places. One last thing uh, is uh, trying to also attract non-traditional students. And this mm -hmm. is establishment of online programs, especially on logistic. Uh, we're having you know, some military base nearby, and we're trying to attract some veterans that are making a transition from the military to civilian life. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to amplify a little bit the comment that Dr. Hiley just made about the bigger question. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, you know, the fact that the num the fraction of students underrepresented minorities who are going to, to engineering is not, can grow mm -hmm. significantly without the overall population mm -hmm. and still lead to a great growth, which we need, of course, in this country. I, I want to add to what he said about, you know, everyone is recruiting for underrepresented minority students, including top engineering schools and primarily white institutions. But it's important to understand they cannot really do that because, for example, we and most of the HBCUs will take students who are not well prepared, who don't look very good on paper, they may be very talented people, they don't have SAT scores, and top universities will not take large numbers of those students. In fact, if you look at, the, because it affects their ranking, among other things, yeah, exactly. they, don't, they don't function that yeah. way. Uh, and if, for example, if you look at the statistics, in many top schools, the fraction of, say, African-American students has actually gone down in the last 10 or 15 years because exactly of this competition for what they mm -hmm. consider quality. Mm -hmm. So that's where HBCUs play an essential role in the pipeline yeah. that is complementary and is not recognized very well. <clears throat> so I think that's one of the things that I wanted to say. 
a lot of what was said, we, we, you know, we all learn from best practices. We're doing most of those things. Two things I'll quickly mention, just to go back to retention, which was raised. We've been able to grow our, our graduate numbers simply by retaining more of our students, as well as growing the incoming number. And that's such a critical thing. I think yeah. using data-based approaches, uh, we've, uh, I'll tell you one example of a program that was originally supported. Uh, we had a first year engineering program, but while students are finishing off their summertime in their sophomore year, still doing mathematics and physics, chemistry, we didn't have a program specifically. We've now introduced one. It started as a pilot funded by Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and Texas Instruments. And as a result of a success, we got a $1 million grant from the National Science Foundation mm -hmm. <clears throat> to establish that program. And therefore, that's a great example of the kind of partnerships that companies can do. Finally, one last thing about our unique situation, because we are the shared college involving uh, Florida State University, which is a, an R1 university, a PWI, and uh, Florida A&M University. We are marketing, and all of us say, you know, you have to market to survive as a company. People know that very well. You've got to have a niche. Every place has to have something, a story to tell about why they are the best place. And in our case, our story is that our students at FAMU can, they can be rattlers and have, they, they graduate from FAMU, but they work together with actually what is the most diverse engineering population at undergraduate engineering school in the country. Because of our shared nature, we're very close to the US population. We have Hispanic, African-Americans, Caucasian, Asian, pretty much the US. That brings skills, soft skills for all of our students, whether the majority or minority, they learn how to work across cultural boundaries. So we've been trying to market that around the country to attract more students to FAMU who might otherwise go somewhere else. And I think in everybody's case, there's a story about why your place, what it is about your place that's very special. Okay, when you're at the end, there's not much left. <laughs> but, but it's all valuable. It's even worse. It's even worse for him. But we uh, at Hampton University, we have we have the pre-college programs. First, let me say our enrollments are not down. They're not up, but they're fairly even right now. They haven't uh, fluctuated much. But we'd like to double our enrollments. So we have pre-college programs. We have the, bless you, the Summer Bridge programs. And I was trying to listen to see what was missing from what my colleagues had said. And we actually have, uh, we participate in track meets, believe it or not. You know, the students, uh, we want to be seen. You know, we have, we get out there and we tell them what engineering is about. We're out there with their activities. You're listening to Dean's Roundtable, a professional development seminar. Featuring Norma B. Clayton and engineering deans from ABET accredited HBCU universities. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, the Bayer STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Okay, so we do something like uh, exposure during track meets. Also for alumni meetings, uh, Prince George's County, we recruit a lot of students from Prince George's County as well as Philadelphia. Uh, I have trips planned in March and April to go up to the alumni meetings and they're gonna bring high school students in to the alumni meetings. And I'm gonna take a team with me 
Uh, first, just looking at me as an African-American female, that's an attraction right there. I tell them what I do and they go, if she can do it, I can do it. So uh, that's a good re recruiting tool. Um, and we're, like I said, we're also going to Philadelphia. Another thing that we do is we have uh, weekend events for high school students uh, and middle school students. We bring them into the campus and we teach them things like uh, expose them to 3D printing and all different you know, types of activities. Mm -hmm. So this is a way, these are ways that we're trying to increase our enrollments. Very good, thank you. Um, as my colleagues have basically gone over everything, but there is one. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you another chance. There's more questions. No, no. This, this is a, a one important difference uh, of the School of Business and Technology at University of Maryland Eastern Shore versus, I believe, my colleagues in that diversity of our programs. And two important academic programs that are in my college, which, are, which I believe all my colleagues agree are predictors of a student's success in engineering is we prepare the math educators, the math teachers who go into the high schools and middle schools and teach these young folks who will eventually become engineers. We also prepare for the state of Maryland, the technology engineering educators who are also in the high schools and middle schools who teach these folks. So we somewhat have an inside track in that we leverage that um, connection with our alumni who are touching these students. I know many of you probably can point to a middle school, high school teacher who set you on your path you are on or, or now have arrived at. And so using that connection, we um, basically can go in and get the cream of the crop or those shining stars that was spoken about earlier who had the potential but may not have yet demonstrated at that level but had the potential to do well. So we leverage that connection. And then feeding into that feedback loop control systems, we have our faculty engage with those alumni in those uh, classrooms and go in and judge competitions and things like that at the high schools and middle schools. Once again, give us another look into the high schools and letting the students know what is offered at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. And lastly, of course, we still have the summer bridge programs and tuition rates, but that is the primary way we have staved off the uh, downturn in minorities graduating from high schools because of our connections with our alumni who are teacher preparers in the high schools in the state of Maryland. Great, thank you. I will share one um, practice because I sit on another board of a PWI and one of the things that they do, it's my alumni, the New Jersey Institute of Technology in New Jersey. And one of the things that we were doing in addition to all of the stuff that you all mentioned here is we started doing parent-student weekends where we would bring the parent with the child, with the prospective sophomore or junior to the campus for a weekend experience. And it was a combination of, as Dr. Ragland said, going around, looking at all departments, talking to people, but then we actually engaged the parents with their child in a hands-on experiment in either a makerspace or a laboratory, 3D printing, nanotechnology, microtechnology, and it really gives the parents a different perspective, A, of what it takes to survive and thrive in this field, but more importantly, to help them help their child in their decisions going forward. So just think about that. Maybe, maybe that's another avenue um, that, that you may want to pursue. It did work for us. We actually tracked the number of parents that were coming with their kids, and we got 50 additional students enrolled in the university this past fall. And we had been doing that for about two summers, but we were able to get 
an additional 50 that came in from high school. And they had a very good first semester, doing well so far this semester. So I'll keep you posted, and maybe when we come back next year, I'll be able to give you some actual data on how well they're doing and if we got another group in from this summer's experience. But I want to shift our attention now to corporations uh, and, and also uh, partnerships with the government. And I sort of have two questions in this area. We'll start with the first one. We know that there's value in partnering with corporations and government. What I would like to know, and, and any of you can respond, not, not all of you necessarily need to, but how are you leveraging these relationships and partnering with corporations and governments in order to um, help with the innovation of the programs that you have or helping you to gain new programs within your current curriculums? Yes, ma'am. We recently designed our uh, computer engineering program, and it was recently ABET accredited. Mm -hmm. And we established a cyber physical systems track. And with the help of Lockheed Martin, we knew exactly what we wanted to put in it. Uh, they had some executives to work with us. They came on campus. That's great. Um, it was it was really good. Mm -hmm. So, and they're also on our engineering advisory board. That's excellent. Anyone else have a best practice, uh, Dr. Aglin? Yeah. Um, at Tuskegee, actually, we have a unique model when uh, we engage industry or government, uh, what we call it uh, ed, uh, center of excellence, education and research center of excellence. We have three models on campus. Uh, industry, they have to have the commitment, of course, and the passion to work with us. So what we do, we have this center of excellence, and it's really run by undergraduates. So we are building pipeline for the government or the industry. Uh, the industry, they sponsor the center. They also, not financially, financial of course is important, but also the engagement and involvement in mentoring the students. Uh, they provide real world industry projects. Every fall, they work the fall, the spring, and in the summer, they hire them as mm -hmm. an intern. Mm -hmm. And that's how uh, we um, enhance our curriculum. Sometimes we have to uh, provide um, maybe a module on metallurgy or uh, maybe corrosion, or, uh, because that's what they want to scale the students to have. So these are really um, working very well at Tuskegee. We see uh, engineers coming on campus almost every month from this industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has been uh, one of the models we work with the industry. Thank you. I'll take one more and then we'll move on. Yes, please. At Southern University, what we do, yeah, we do a curriculum retreat. So we'll invite people from industry, government, and so on to give us some feedback about what skill they're looking for. We can make some adjustment in our curriculum to line their needs the, the mm -hmm. curriculum with the workforce needs. And that's very important. Yes. Okay, because they did some kind of survey. They found out, you know, for instance, a lot, a lot of employers are not pleased with the students when they graduate, the lack of some skill, mm -hmm. technical skill, and so on. So we try to provide them skill set that they need to be more, more marketable. They can kind of really be ready for the workforce mm -hmm. at the time of graduation. Okay. Yeah. I want to give an example how we are working with the government institutions. Yeah. Innovation That's can right. happen when you have academic programs side by side, not so that we can apply for grants. 
one area we wanted to focus is on advanced manufacturing, additive manufacturing. We started graduate program, including PhD. We also had seed work, basic research going on in the area of uh, additive nano manufacturing, and we set up the labs. Then we went to NSF and applied for this Crest Center, $5 million Crest Center, mainly focusing on nano manufacturing, creating polysurfaces and number of things in that area. Then we also used the similar facility to get grants from NASA. A $3 million CAM Star Center, mainly doing additive manufacturing in space-related technology. And Department of Energy also funded it, and NIST also funded it. Because this is an area which is in the growth area of a need of innovation. Additive manufacturing has brought about revolution in manufacturing. Personally, I'm a manufacturing engineer. So uh, if you look at these aerospace companies, Pratt & Whitney, General Electric, Rolls-Royce, they are competing each other so that they can bring out the first generation of aerospace the machines or the jet engines, which are much lighter and save a lot of energy. So not only in aerospace area, but that, that need is there in many areas. So the main success is because you have to line up these things, the national needs, innovation and our facilities has to work together yeah. to get some grants. And we want to do the same with the industries. We mm -hmm. haven't done that yet. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. I'm gonna put you guys on the spot for a moment. As a chair of a university board, I have to ask you this question. Uh, we know the challenges that you all are facing, not only with student enrollment, but with infrastructure and investment to get to the types of innovative solutions that we need for the future. And I don't need everybody to answer, but you certainly can. But I'd be interested as a board chair, what can we do as board leaders to support you in those endeavors as you're trying to get to a 21st century set of curriculum and infrastructure so that you can give us the capable workforce that the world needs? Can a few of you tackle that one? Yes, right here, uh, yes, right. Dr. Scott. I'd like to say, first of all, the easiest thing to do is write a check. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I'd say all of us have foundations. And um, there are things like endowments, scholarships, mm -hmm. uh, there's lab equipment, uh, there's travel funds. I just mm -hmm. found that out today, but yeah. being a pleasant recipient of, of one yeah. of those things, how much yeah. those things can I'll, really I'll take a couple of those tickets <laughs> if you want to give them up. And uh, also the thing for project funding, in other words, students have projects, mm -hmm. and they cost money. Yes. And a lot of times we look for different mm -hmm. sources to be able to find those funds. Um, then there's a good thing about research. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times we can have mutually beneficial partnerships in sure. working together. And uh, there's also, a lot of times people don't think about this, but it's faculty, staff, professional development. Yes. Um, a lot of times we have mm -hmm. uh, faculty that really need discovery, need to sort of refresh their things, mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are in contact, yes. first order, with our students. And so if they uh, are up on the latest pedagogical skills or research procedures or even just finding out about what's going on in their areas, they can benefit the student uh, more. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the things that, um, at least I think, uh, you can, that uh, any corporate or government mm -hmm. partner can, can help us out with. And uh, I like to say those things go a long way. The most important thing is, is that when we have an exchange back and forth, listening is really important. 
And I'll give an example in terms of when uh, people listen and then things happen. Uh, we have uh, <coughs> programs for uh, the professional master's degree. And they came about because we listened to our corporate partners. And one thing they said is, well, we need people that have these skills. But not only that, they said, we need people who can do it quickly. And in other words, your university has mm -hmm. to respond quickly because the workforce, our needs are growing, and we just can't wait yeah. <laughs> for the speed of uh, academics to mm -hmm. solve our problem. So in that, uh, a, a couple of things were invented, and that was the one-year uh, master's programs where we accelerate mm -hmm. students through, get them to our corporate partners, and they sponsor the students. Mm -hmm. So it's not like everybody's yeah. fishing around looking for something, but it's very focused. Mm -hmm. uh, we provide what they want, and then in turn, uh, not only provide what they want, but we provide it in an expedient way. So that's an investment in, a, um, in an HBCU that I think is a win-win situation. Thank you so much, Dr. Cohen. And, and to add, um, and you did an excellent job of giving that whole picture, really excellent. But at, you asked as a board chair, uh, board chair or even board as chair. a board. Yeah. And as you or think as about uh, the board of trustees for any of our universities, one of the things that would be wonderful is if the board, as busy as you are, and as much time as, it, as being a board uh, of trustee takes, it would help if you look deeper. Mm -hmm. And so our universities to be the best of who we're seeking to be requires that our board is informed mm -hmm. and understands what the challenges are. And so when you think about how well is it infrastructure working for your faculty to not only get the grants, mm -hmm. but to spend the grants. Yes. And if there are issues there, then help your presidents fix those issues. Because if you can't fix those, then it gets in the way of the competitiveness. Mm -hmm. Ask the questions regarding um, workload. Mm -hmm. If our workloads and our workloads always are yeah. higher than at our, yeah. your PWI, so if you compare NJITs oh, to yeah. Tuskegee's, the workload is significantly higher at Tuskegee. Yes. And so, because she's on both boards, that's the only reason why I mentioned his board, <laughs> you know. And it's so, very high. And so, <laughs> I spent a lot of time with Dean Aglin. It's a high workload, yeah. And so if you, if you think about that, then solutioning ways to get it to a place so that the universities can become all that they can be mm -hmm. would be so helpful for the board to understand. And so if you understand it, then you can also bring some, it's the solutions. Yeah. And so I, I really think that's a valuable part. And so when Craig Scott was talking about listening, it's the listening and then thinking through the solutions as opposed to listening, dismissing, and not actually point. taking action so that it's not true in two years. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's very important. Yes. Can I sure you can. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one, Is this the person Yes, I, I work with him a lot, and he can tell you our board meetings are very transparent because I'm trying to look deeper to really yeah. figure out what's what's happening underneath. Absolutely. Um, yes. One, one of, the, um, of the challenging, actually, things we have, and probably are aware of that, and maybe my colleagues here are the same, is um, physical and the educational infrastructure. Yes. And... Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of other things, you know, but but uh, yeah, the, but it's it's very it's very important just to have an environment where the students can learn, and also if you have a lab with a research, mm -hmm. uh, it is it is equipped with with. Um, we're not asking for just um, a reasonable, uh, just um, 
infrastructure for the labs, for the research, mm -hmm. that's important for us because it encourages students to learn and also the researcher to do more yes. uh, research. Absolutely. We've got a couple more down here and then I'm going to get to the next question. Either one of you can start. You'll quickly, both, I'd like to hear quickly, from In addition to the building infrastructures in terms of labs and teaching spaces, I think um, the sponsor programs, mm -hmm. you know, w when you look at state schools like Virginia State, the state budget is dwindling. Mm -hmm. And the only yeah. place where we can look for resources is at federal level. Yeah. Now, but when you are having, uh, in, you know, the sponsor program that is not well established, uh, you know, where the, the pre-award and the post-award structure is not supporting the researchers, where researchers have to do all the work, and even after they get funded, they have to be the one responsible for, you know, doing the procurement and, you know, the mm -hmm. HR issue, uh, I think we are less competitive. So we needed to invest on those. Those are the things, because historically, we may not be established to promote research. We, we, we might have been established as teaching institution, yeah. but it's time for us to move to the next step. So as a board member, that's one area yeah. of investment that you can help us Thank with. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's very good. So yeah. I'd like to comment on the boards of public, many of us are yeah. public, some are private. That's right. Uh, and, and point out, which is a kind of well-known thing, you can find an article about this in the Chronicle of Higher Education. More and more states are using performance models for funding of universities, which are, are completely focused on outputs and no focus on inputs. Mm -hmm. And they're penalizing historically you black colleges and universities because they are recognizing that, I mean, for example, in the state of Florida, as an example, um, a performance money, 20% of the money goes on the table every year and you're judged by your graduation rate, retention rate, uh, a number of factors which are all based on what outcomes out of your university. Nothing considers how many Pell Grant students did you have. <laughs> Good luck to University of Florida graduating 80% graduation rate in five years with 80% Pell Grant students. So the lack of recognition for the importance of taking students who otherwise may not go to college and advancing them is, mm -hmm. and they take money away from FAMU yes, and give it do. to University of Florida yes. and other That's universities. Right. So the point I want to make is boards have a critical role here because they're, at least in many states, political. Mm -hmm. So I would strongly encourage that companies get involved in this because that's probably the only way, since most southern states are Republican, primarily it's going to be the economic and corporate recognition that this is no way to run mm -hmm. a show. If you really want to change diversity in this country, you need to do it differently. Boards could play, I don't see it happening anywhere, mm -hmm. could play a, a big role perhaps in, in, in beginning to change that political situation. Yeah. And that's a great tee-up to my next question because it is about corporations. And what, what do you want them to know? And, and why should they invest in you? And I just heard a great answer from you. Um, I'd like to hear from others. If, the, if, if this were your audience of corporate leaders, what would you want them to know? And, and why should they invest in you? What is your value proposition back to them? And I'll, I'll start I'll, with you, Dr. Yeah, I'll add, and Mary was absolutely right, but in what world, uh, from a company standpoint, do you say you value something and then not show that by your mm -hmm. investment in it? That's right. So yes. when you come to our universities, and this group has heard this from us before, mm -hmm. I want your best and your brightest, and yet you had nothing to do 
with producing it because you are not investing in us. You are not yeah. helping to prepare That's them. Right. You are not engaging with us. You're not incorporate. You're not engaging in ways that help them mm -hmm. be exposed to the kinds of things that you know you need for this very dynamic workforce mm -hmm. and changing work uh, dynamic that you need. Where does that make sense? And yeah. we're technical. So we can see what's logical and what's not. And so when you think that way and when you accept that that's okay, it means that you are okay with uh, just pulling and deflating the environments that we mm -hmm. are, are, are leads of, mm -hmm. you know, colleges mm -hmm. of engineering. Mm -hmm. When you value this diverse workforce, when you value and say, I need American citizens to be in my company because I happen to work for the mm -hmm. government, et cetera, mm -hmm. you would think that you would also invest in the places that have shown for many decades mm -hmm. how well we deliver oh, yeah. the product, how well we teach and educate mm -hmm these minds. Mm -hmm. And so you would think that would be just very logical to invest in us. And so mm -hmm. that is the reason why to invest in us because we are delivering. We continue to deliver. Mm -hmm. And when you invest in us, imagine how much we can amplify and magnify what we already deliver to a exactly. greater amplitude. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Dr. Jane. Yeah, I totally agree on that. Um, you know, here's a, a two key words. One is the pipeline, one is the resource, right? Mm -hmm. So I really encourage the corporate, you know, just to do it, just to do it. You know, we are not expecting a huge quantum leap, but step by step. A good example is the DOD support to us. You know, the university need to build the program. We need to build our resource and they provide money, not only the money, the subject matter expert to us. You know, in return, we can train our students, our program girl. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Very good. Any other thoughts on that? Yes, I see a couple of hands down here. I just want to add to what Robin said. Not only do, do we deliver, but we deliver with very limited resources, financial resources. I mean, I've worked at a majority institution and a minority institution, and we certainly deliver with very little. They give so much more to the majority institutions. We get so little, and we do a lot with it. Yeah, now I agree with you. And, and prior to my role as a trustee, I worked at Boeing um, for a number of years. And same thing with Lockheed Martin. And I also worked at GM. And one of the things that I did when I was at Boeing is I actually started to track graduates coming in from different colleges. And how fast are they moving in the company? And I can tell you, a lot of the HBCU students that were hired into Boeing actually move at faster rates. Mm -hmm. If you just look at their mid-level and top leadership, a good percentage of them have come out of HBCUs. Mm -hmm. And the work that they do, I mean, you heard it this morning at the Dean's Breakfast. We have a young man that's working on the next, you know, uh, presidential airplane. I mean, that's a huge uh, responsibility to be able to do something like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't think that they're valuing, that they see as much of that value proposition. And I would encourage you to try to get these leaders down on the campuses to really look at what the students are doing. The other thing that, um, that I've often done is pulled, and, and we did it, what, a couple of years ago, um, Dean Aglin, when we went to Boeing, and we pulled every Tuskegee University alum into one room, and we let these corporate executives hear what these people do every day. And they were just blown away. And as a result, funding increased. So, you know, there's an awareness, too, because let's face it, they sit up here and the higher you go, you lose more perspective of what's going on underneath you. 
So I think that we have to just strengthen that partnership, but we definitely need some infrastructure and policy changes, particularly around retention rates. Because one of the things that really gets on my nerves as a, a now a person in higher ed is how we measure the graduation rates. So if you all transfer a student in, you get no credit for that student because they're not in your cohort. So what do we do? Do we play the numbers game with US News and, and only take the students that are in our cohort and ignore all the others that are coming in from two-year universities into a four-year university? We really need to look at this ecosystem and figure out how we can fix it. And I think corporations can really help. But it is political, and it is going to take time. So let me throw uh, the, the uh, microphone out here to the audience. Um, What's on your mind? What would you like to ask this group of educators? I mean, you, you got a captive audience. Um, this is your time. So if you have a question, you please go to the microphone, because I have hundreds of questions. I could stay here all day with this group, but I'd like to hear from you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Garland Thompson. Most of you know me. I used to write on the Baltimore Sun and cover science and technology the environment, space, military systems, et cetera, et cetera, on the editorial page, writing policy. What I say, and I have to ask that question, when are you going to start saying some of the things I had to say when I talked to corporate leaders in Maryland? In Maryland, in Baltimore, is an outfit called the Greater Baltimore Committee. It is the corporate chiefs who run pretty much the local economy. They put together a major technology in initiative, and they published a five-year plan. And in that five-year plan, it looked at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. It looked at the University of Maryland College Park. It looked at Johns Hopkins, and it did not look at Morgan. It did not look at Coppin. It did not look at the Community College of Baltimore. They designated a writer, a lawyer, to write columns about what should happen in Maryland. Well, I filled in one day for the opinion page editor, and he called in to ask what I thought about his writing. And I said I thought his writing was garbage. But he said, well, why do you say that? I said, well, you, you've left out workforce issues. You're talking about engineering in central Maryland, and you left out the look at the people who are training such a, such a big percentage of the major population here. And he said, well, I said, well, you, did you talk to Morgan State when you talk about engineering? And he said, well, everybody over there is incompetent. Well, really? Yes. I said, well, you're saying the president, then Richardson, said, oh, no, he's a bright man, but his people are no good. Really, did you talk to the dean of engineering, Dr. Deloach? Well, we invited him to our reception. I said, you don't invite him to your reception. He needs to be in the five-year plan. Yeah, but everybody's incompetent over there. So I said, wait, 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 wait. I'm an editorial writer. I speak for the paper. Tell me who's incompetent, and I will demand that they be fired. Let's have the names. I've got my pen. Let's do it now. Uh, 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 uh. I said, when's the last time you've been on that campus? Hear me, I'm not just talking about Morgan State University. When's the last time you've been on that campus? Uh, uh, uh. Have you been on that campus? Uh, uh, uh. Okay, let me say this to you. I'm a professional writer. You cannot outwrite me. Therefore, 
the next time you write a column, I'm going to write my own column and trash everything you say until the day you can tell me you went there, looked at it, met that faculty, and had some real opinion about them. Now, be clear, I'm not telling you, you have to like what you see. You have to tell me you really saw and know what they're talking about. So he called me a few days later and said, I'm really impressed with what I saw. I'm glad you got me to go. I said, now, wait a minute, don't, don't say that to please me. Just let me know who did you meet. Let's talk about that. What I'm saying is you really have to say forcefully back to the people like that. And he represented the corporate leadership of the region, mm -hmm. much of the state. Yeah. I mean, U.S. News and Rubber Report is publishing its list of who does what produces this many people ranking by academic reputation. When do you say to them what I just heard? You're not taking into account our inputs. You're not addressing the fact that so many of our students came transferring from two-year colleges and you're not counting, letting them be counting. Your measure is wrong and you guys are full of garbage and I'm going to write <laughs> that you're full of garbage when you publish your stupid list. When do you have the moxie to say, shut up? Yeah. I literally wrote a column in the Baltimore Sun to tell the Baltimore Sun's newsroom to shut up one day. And they were so mad at me that I almost got lynched, except I told them the first person that didn't like it, I was going to knock him out. <laughs> and so nothing else was said. When do you start saying to them forcefully, in realistic, pragmatic terms, let's say in thematically and epistemologically correct, this is bad garbage you're putting out to the audience and affects us badly? Yeah, well, I, to answer that question, I will share with you that the accrediting agencies across the regions are starting to look at this, if you all haven't heard that. Middle states, SACs in the southern region, they're starting to look at this and they're questioning it themselves because they have to come out and evaluate these programs and evaluate the operations of the university. So the conversations are starting. They just haven't hit a crescendo yet, but I think in the next couple of years, I think it's going to come under even more scrutiny as we continue to see declining enrollment, and not just with African-American students, but also with students in general across the U.S. So, but thank you for your feedback. We Bless appreciate your heart. it. All of us in the room have to be prepared to make them fess up yes. and stand up yes. for real standards. That's right. Otherwise, we're always going to be having this conversation. Mm-hmm. No, I'm yeah. tired of having this conversation. Yeah, and I'm just starting, and I'm tired. So, <laughs> yes, please. Your name? Danielle Gore. Okay. Um, I've spoken to a couple of you. So, um, I'm a program manager for a medical device accelerator in Memphis, Tennessee. So, we invest upwards of fifty thousand dollars into medical device innovations, traditionally from biomedical engineering students who have design concepts or ideas, and we bring them into our accelerator and we essentially help them with all of the product development, business development to get those products onto the marketplace. We've had like a 45% success rate so far with the 33 companies we've invested in, and they've gone on to garner over 
over $14 million in um, future investments since our program. So at this point, you know, we're really eager to make sure that our next, our next investments are from Black engineers and Black students. So we're really pushing for trying to connect and forge partnerships with HBCUs. And I'm curious to know, um, what does an intentional um, relationship or partnership look like with HBCUs? So to your point, we're not just coming and trying to take, but we're actually investing. So with our capacity, we can't necessarily invest in the institution, but we absolutely can invest in the students. And I want you to also consider if you don't have a biomedical engineering department, how do we create or think through pipeline programs for funneling some of your top engineers into our program um, with those interchangeable engineering skills? Very good question. Okay, so I see a couple of hands. Um, we'll start here and then here and here, and then we'll come down to you, Dr. Koger. So um, about six years ago, the uh, university supported mm -hmm the building and development of a space that we call the innovation space uh, in our uh, building for architecture. And uh, we have a director of innovation who is a mechanical engineer and he does a lot of 3D printing and entrepreneurial type activities. So he's responsible for taking that space and really utilizing it in a way that will engender innovation at the at university. So it can be anything from a hackathon sponsored by the School of Business that involves students from the School of B as well as engineering, or it can be uh, an opportunity where you could come to our campus and we could have a, uh, a reception, if you will, where you could pitch um, the $50,000 opportunity that you have for students. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would be able to uh, then have a follow-up and encourage some of our chemical engineering students, mechanical engineering students who do biomedically related uh, activities and faculty that do biomedical research and then start a conversation in, in terms of how your opportunity might, uh, how we could take advantage of it. And so it would be, in my view, intentional because you would be coming to campus, sharing that in the space uh, we have you know, a way to then continue that conversation with a faculty lead. And then whether we had an internal competition so that, you know, one individual might go forward or if multiples uh, projects could be funded, it would be a way to get the conversation started. And then at the end of the day, you have to have a faculty member who's, who's championing what you're doing, who feels connected and feels that it's beneficial. And then from there, we're able to harness the innovation infrastructure at Howard University to really make it happen for the students. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. Next. At UDC, we have a new biomedical engineering program, and the students are in the final year. And right now, they are working with exactly the same thing you are talking about with a small company. And the company has uh, actually talked about the projects, and students have worked one full year. They, there is a mentor from the company and then a faculty advisor. And for the success of the project, the mentor has to be in touch with the students week by week basis. At the end of the year, there could be a product, there could be a process, there could be a program, yeah, like depending on that. So this model we want to explore further because right now our numbers are small, but next year the number is going to increase. We would like to work with more companies of that kind of a senior project, capstone project model. Okay, thank you. Please. It's, I need more information a little bit about how your company works. We'll do that offline. But uh, easily, 
I can imagine that depending on how you're structured, you could add to. So we have an ABET accredited bioengineering program. And it, we also have a master's program in bioengineering at ANT, and so you could easily engage in courses that are already focused on uh, innovations, and help them see some of the road to commercialization of research. And I'm saying that deliberately because while you're focused on the students, the way to affect more students is to focus on the faculty. And so if you start thinking about how you can add to what the faculty already do and also expose them to some other possibilities, you might find that by hitting faculty mm -hmm. and our students in a way that helps the faculty as opposed to just add more work for the faculty, it could actually add to common goals. Thank you. Okay, we have time for two more questions because they gave me the flag outside. So we'll take one here. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Tony Kirk. Um, my question uh, kind of relates to some of the topics that you all brought up. You all do a lot with a little, as, as was mentioned before, and oftentimes, once those students graduate, um, they are on an accelerated route, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, do you all have an, a metric or a process for tracking the success of those students post-graduation? And is that uh, information being fed them back to your corporate sponsorships? Because I find a lot of times they're unaware of the success that your students are having post-graduation. And that information bolsters the confidence that they have uh, going forward in partnerships. For one of our scholarship programs, which is called the NEMAS program, Desorts National Institute for Mathematics and Applied Science, these are the scholarship students in STEM. We do track what they do in terms of how many students go on to get their master's, their PhDs, or, or the MD degree. And so we do have results in terms of statistics on those students. Overall, for our college, we do not. But for that particular program, we do. And the reason why it's hard to have it for the whole college is because you rely on the connectivity with your graduates in order yep. to have the information fed back. That's right. So you only get a small percentage of that information back, so then you don't have the right fidelity yeah. of the results. Yeah. Now, I, I will tell you, for, for Boeing, they have what they call a portfolio pruning process. Okay, and fortunately, none of you up here have been pruned out of their portfolio, but one of the things that I was tasked to do um, as a corporate executive was actually to develop a portfolio of schools. And we had over 2,000 schools that Boeing had relationships with around the world. And so when a graduating class comes in, they literally track where those people are. And every year they take a benchmark and they have criteria, and if you fall below that criteria, they go have a conversation with the, with the university, with the dean of that program that the student came out of and the president of the university. And if they see that, that same level of performance over a two-year people, you go out of their portfolio for two years, and then you have to reapply to come back in as a partner school. But they're unique in that, and they do that because there's such a small pool, and the aerospace industry needs the very best talent. So, you know, in the, we don't typically see that in the ABET type programs, but the ones that are non-accredited, we see it a lot. Right. But yeah, yeah, we really do, because they have a certain set of standards that they have to operate to, and that kind of guarantees a level of competence when the student comes into an engineering role. But on the flip, uh, all corporations that interact with any school, if you make sure you ask the questions on all the degrees mm -hmm. that your employees have and where That's they're right. from, and then if you were having a relationship with that particular college, for that dean to mm -hmm. know how their students, their graduates, 
are doing and you giving that feedback would be very helpful. Mm -hmm. So just remember there's a there's a positive action that yes. can happen from the corporate side and the government side that would be yeah. very beneficial to us. Absolutely. Okay, we have one more question and it's open for all of you. I have a comment first. I'm Jim Cook, the Deputy Undersecretary of the Army for Test and Evaluation. Uh, we want to hire people. And I think you're poor mouthing yourselves on some things. You're small schools, uh, but that's an advantage because you actually, the, the higher level people, the PhDs teach the courses and you actually know your people. Uh, one of my sons, when he came back from Iraq, took his GI Bill, went to Tampa uh, and had uh, 40,000 people on the campus, went to 400 person lectures in engineering with a graduate assistant. You know, that's not the same as what you're doing. You're producing better people. And I served along with people from officers from Tuskegee, and they were just as good as any West Point officers, and I'm a graduate of West Point, so I can say that. Uh, the, the, the fact is, I, I am not here from a diversity perspective. I'm here to fill holes in my formations, uh, which are in robotics, nanotechnology, quantum computing, data ana analytics, and uh, cybersecurity. Those are the things that I want to partner with you to do. I have a lot of organizations, and I'll be teeing up those organizations to coordinate with you. Most of those things, and I've already done it with Dr. Deng from uh, A&M, uh, thank you. And uh, most of those things require some adjustments to the curriculum mm -hmm. so that the OPM, we have to go, ever since the civil service was put in mm -hmm. in the 1880s, they have strict rules on how to hire so it's fair. Yes. That fairness translates into what we call position descriptions. Those position descriptions say you've had these courses and you have these certifications. If you have a track that produces a bachelor's of science in nanotechnology and you don't have some of the things in the position description, the automated software system that searches on whether or not you get an interview won't pick you up. So what we want to do is partner with you so that those things are directly in your curriculum and you come to us automatically for an interview. We can start you at about 65 with a bachelor's. I'm stymied by the wage grade system, which can go on uh, the internet and see what the what the starting wage is in your area for a GS9 step five. Uh, and it's just uh, in Alabama, it's 65. But in those things, are you willing when we come by to adjust and adapt your curriculum to pipeline into us? That's my question. Okay. Yeah, and I can take one response online and then we'll have to move the conversation outside because the next group is ready to come in. So who would like, I see a hand down here, please. Uh, well, um, at UMES, we would love that. We are currently trying to uh, get our cybersecurity graduate program accredited. And so we need an industrial advisory board as part of that process. And the industrial advisory board is, is, would do or recommend what you're talking about help us address our curriculum to ensure that it's meeting the workforce needs of the industry. So we'd be very much uh, excited if we could get someone from the organization to help us with I that. can do that. Okay. Home cybersecurity in the Army. Well, let me thank the deans, please. Just thank our deans for their time. And uh, I'm sure that the deans will be around. So if you all want to continue the conversation, I know some of you still have a perspective that you'd like to share. If we could just move that outside the room, that would be helpful. Thank you all for coming. Please make sure that you got your badges swiped so that you can get your continuing ed credits. 
from CCG. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Dean's Roundtable, a professional development seminar featuring the Boeing Company retiree, Norma B. Clayton, and engineering deans from ABET accredited HBCU universities. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.bea.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.